Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Allison Pinches, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright. It is good to be together in this way this morning. Well, when I was in high school, I was really good at chemistry. It made sense like math, but it was a little bit more interesting. And being my best subject, I thought nothing of taking the required first-year chemistry course at U of T. I was a good student, I studied, I went to class and prepared for the organic chemistry midterm. I sat in the exam and it was like something out of a bad dream. I looked at these questions and they may as well have been in Greek. I understood nothing. I scribbled anything I could, I cried a little, I scribbled some more. And when I got my exam back, even sadder than the 19% circled on top was my reaction. Huh, that's 19 more than I expected. <laughs> Have you ever had a moment like that when you crashed and burned at something you were supposed to be good at? If so, then you might be able to relate to one of the people in our story today. This is our third week in a series on vocation. Pastor Alex led us through examining the calling of Moses in Exodus 3, and last week we looked at the call for the Israelites to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which they had been called into exile. And this week we're going to continue exploring the idea of vocation and calling as we look at a story from the life of Jesus. Our story comes from the Gospel of Luke, which is one of the accounts of Jesus' life. Jesus grew up in Nazareth and learned how to be a carpenter from his dad, Joseph. And our story takes place near the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In the chapter before our story today, chapter 4, we see Jesus teaching for the first time in a synagogue, sending away an evil spirit, healing a woman with a bad fever, and then casting out many evil spirits and healing countless sick people. And these actions have started to draw some attention. Would you join with me as we pray before we begin to read together from Luke chapter 5? Father God, I thank you that you helped Luke to be able to gather all of the information needed to write down this story. And God, we pray that as we enter into this story, that you would help us not just to understand the truths that are told in it, but that you would help us to live into the invitations that we get to see and come to understand and to believe in this, in this story. For we ask this in your name. Amen. So I would encourage you to have a Bible with you this morning. Um, it would be great to have it open either on your phone or with you so that you can keep referring back to it as we go through the story together. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and saw the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, "'Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch.' Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long and but have caught nothing. Yet, if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. But Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. 
For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to the shore, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you may remember this passage from our very first community Bible study. Community Bible study was something we did way back in the old days when we didn't think twice about gathering 130 people in a room, except that we did think twice because we couldn't believe that 130 people would show up to study the Bible on a Wednesday night. Someone delightfully pointed out to me that we were living the passage with this great catch of participants. Yes, I'm afraid that did make us all fish. But whether you've done a study like that before or not, let's start with some careful observation and noticing of this text, our who, what, where, when questions. Jesus is quickly growing in popularity. He only started teaching and healing people in the last chapter, and already there are crowds of people coming to see him. There were so many people that it says the crowds were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. The Lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee, is a huge lake, and there's a lot of the shore is marked with these little, these steepish hills going down into the water. So our sound tech friend's ears should be perking up here. Do you see what he's doing? The crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, and he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. He got into one of the boats and asked Simon to put out a little way from the shore. He's not trying to make a quick getaway from the oppressive crowds. Just the opposite. He's making use of the natural amphitheater, of the geography, and the principle that sound travels over water. Anyone that's been to a cottage at night knows you have to be careful what you say on the dock because it can be heard right across the lake. And Jesus, lacking a microphone, is creating his own sound system. So that's the where. Now the who is even more interesting. A rabbi or Jewish religious teacher would go around from town to town and people would come to hear them teach. There's this whole crowd of people there to listen to Jesus and he gets in the boat of one of the guys who isn't. These guys have just worked all night and they are cleaning up their equipment and putting it away. Jesus does not leave them as bystanders. He involves the one guy who's not there to listen to him. Hopping into the boat, he says, hey, do you mind pushing the boat out a little? I can only imagine how cranky I would be if I'd been up all night, hadn't caught anything, and was asked to take this rabbi out in my boat. It's interesting to note that this may not be Simon's first encounter with Jesus. Listen to what Luke writes in the previous chapter 4, verse 38. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. We don't really know all of Simon's experience with Jesus up to this point, but what we do know is that he's not on the beach this morning to hear this rabbi teach. So after considering the who, where, when, we're on to what happens. And with this, we are entering the zone of progressive invitations. Jesus gives Simon three invitations, and with each invitation, the adventure gets a little crazier. The first invitation seems relatively simple. 
Jesus wants to use the boat to teach, so he asks Simon to put out a little from the shore. Simon, tired from being up all night, frustrated from not catching anything, says, okay, maybe he thinks it's the least he can do for healing his mother-in-law. Maybe he's curious. Maybe it's the respect for the rabbi. Now, the next invitation is a bigger ask. After he finishes teaching, the rabbi says, hey, let's go out into the deep water and you can try throwing your nets in there. Okay, there are at least five things running through Simon's mind right now. One, you fish at night, not during the day. Everyone knows the best fishing there was done in the dark. Two, you catch fish as they are feeding near the shore. You don't catch fish out in the deep. Three, though they were fishermen, Jewish people were not really water people. There was a lot of mythology about the deep waters being chaotic and even evil. You don't go out into the deep. Four, they just finished cleaning, packing up, and putting away all of their nets, and this guy wants them to just throw them all in? It will take ages to put them away again, and that is precious time they could be sleeping. Five, who does this guy think he is? They are the experts. They do this every night. They know where and how to fish, and they just spent all night and didn't catch anything. What could possibly be gained from throwing in their clean nets in broad daylight in the middle of the lake? This would be like, like if some prof from the university showed up at Steve Taylor's and said, why don't you try holding a hammer like this? Or like the same prof went over to the gas station and said to Mike, you should stand on your head while pumping gas. Or, or maybe it's like Pastor Alex suggests that Louise's year-end accounts might work better if she inverted the columns. And then he swings by Starbucks and hops behind the bar to show Emily a new technique for how to froth milk. Who does this religious teacher think he is? We can only guess at Simon's tone when he says, the master, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. Simon reluctantly agrees. There is something about this guy that commands respect. So invitation number two, challenge accepted. With each invitation that is accepted, with each progression of obedience, Simon gets to see more of who this guy is. Accepting the first invitation for Simon to take the boat a little ways from the shore got him a front row seat to hear this guy teach. The second invitation that is accepted, well, this is where things get wild. Remember, wrong time, wrong place, and as one author noted, Jesus, the carpenter-turned-preacher, tells Simon the fisherman how to fish. Their once empty nets now teem with fish. The weight and vast quantity of the fish begin to tear their nets. What is happening? They have never seen anything like this. Quickly, they call their partners to come with their boat, and they filled both boats so full that the boats were beginning to sink. And just as a physicist would marvel most at something that defies gravity, this expert fisherman is shocked at what he is seeing and has only one explanation. This guy, who is he? And where he previously called him master, a generic term for any overseer, now he calls him curious, Lord, not once, but twice. Curious, Lord, he to whom a person belongs. 
And though Simon doesn't know all of who this man is, he recognizes power and authority and something divine. And suddenly, his right seeing of the rabbi in his boat, it blinds him so that, so that he can't even look at him. And as he sees Jesus, it's like holding a mirror, and he sees himself and sees the wide gap, the chasm between them, between this carpenter-turned-rabbi-fish-catcher and him. He knows who he is, what he has done, what he has left undone, and what dwells in the crevices of his heart. And seeing the chasm between himself and this, this curios, unable to get away himself, surrounded by fish in a boat, all this vision pummels him to the ground. And once down, he says, Lord, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. The author gives us a hint, a clue, a spark that tells us something profound is happening here for Simon. In the rest of the passage, he's simply called Simon, which means a reed swaying in the wind. And we are still two chapters away from Jesus giving him the new name Peter or Rocky. But the author calling him Simon Peter here, element of sight, of revelation, prostration, and humiliation, Simon is becoming more of his true self. And so Simon, the reed swaying in the wind, moves onto solid ground as Peter, rocky. Peter, of whom Jesus will one day say, on this rock, I will build my church. All that lies ahead, but for now, Jesus full of love and delight, looks at the man at his knees, denies his request to move away, and rather invites him closer. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Simon was not disqualified from following Jesus. He's almost held back by his shame, but Jesus reaches out and says, I see you, I know you, and I'm still inviting you. And who knew that Jesus was the one fishing that day and that the catch would be a few fishermen not used to being on that end of the line. When Simon accepted this second invitation to go out to the deep and let down their nets, he had no idea what he was in for. Along with the catch of a lifetime, he gets to see something of who this man is, his authority, the respect he commands, the power and potential of this teacher. And in seeing him, he sees himself. And more than fish, more than insight and clarity, Simon's acceptance of this second invitation leads to a third invitation. From now on, you will be catching people. Jesus sees who Simon is, the good, the bad, the ugly, the worth, the potential, and gives him a new orientation. He doesn't say to him, now you'll be a rabbi like me, or now you'll do an entirely new thing. Rather, he takes who Simon the fisherman is, and he expands it. Says, you have been catching fish, now you will catch people. He speaks his language. He incorporates all of who he is into this invitation. He didn't turn water into wine for the fishermen. He speaks in fish to them. He speaks of abundance and authority by giving the fishermen a boatload of fish. This new calling to catch people is so beautifully personal. The invitation is not about Simon becoming less of himself. Rather, it is inviting him to step into the truest, fullest version of himself. 
This story reminds me of one of my beloved former students, Tien. Tien was friends with some of the students who were part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and I started getting to know her, and eventually she and I started meeting regularly to study the Bible. I'm not quite sure how this happened, but one day we started talking about her trying to follow Jesus like an experiment. And so she decided to give it a try, to experiment with following Jesus for a week. The next week she came back and I said a little nervously, how'd it go? Great, she answered, and then proceeded to tell me about a number of things that had happened during the week, most notably a breakthrough in a difficult family relationship. So I said, well, what do you think about the experiment? And she said, I'm going to try it for another week. So we continued like this for some time. And it wasn't until much later that I realized she was following Jesus, but didn't believe in God. That felt backwards to me. But God seemed to be doing something significant in her life. So who is I to question? And I'll never forget the day we met. And she said, Allison, I believe in God now. Blown away, delighted, and surprised, I said, well, how did that happen? Wondering which of our Bible studies had landed for her, or which Christian friends she had talked to, or maybe the church service she attended. I was reading my physics textbook. <laughs> Your physics textbook? Yeah. And then she went on to tell me how she came to the conclusion that there is a God by reading her physics textbook. How incredibly beautiful. As an engineering student, she loved physics, and God was speaking to her in her own language. I also love that, like Simon, she did not have much figured out when she started her experiment of following Jesus. Jesus met her there and delighted in her experiment of following, and saying yes to one invitation led to another and to another and to more and more fruit in her life. God met Tien in her physics textbook and spoke to Simon with fish. And God meets us in these delightfully personal ways and invites all of who we are to follow him. The text says they left everything and followed him. When Simon responded to the first invitation, he got a front row seat to hear this new preacher. With the second invitation, he got piles of fish and incredible insight into who this man is and who he is. So what about this third invitation? What does he receive? Well, you'll have to read the rest of Luke and also the book of Acts to see Simon really become Peter the Rock. In our story, he leaves his boat, his nets, his livelihood, security, the family business, the catch of a lifetime. And for accepting this third invitation, he gets uncertainty. In high school, I decided I would go to Trinity Western University because it was a small Christian school close to home. God intervened in that decision, and the girl that never even wanted to go to summer camp moved across the country. That invitation led me to another move to Germany, and finally, the craziest move of all, back to Toronto. Following Jesus is not easy. It can be difficult, uncertain, and even painful at times, but I know my life has been way more of an adventure because of it. Sometimes the things that we have to let go of are really good things. For a while, it really bugged me that they left behind all these fish, this catch of a lifetime on the beach. A few years ago, I was really struggling with a decision to leave InterVarsity. 
I'd worked with them for over a decade. I loved the staff and students, and I had been so well mentored and loved, and I was having a really hard time leaving. I was sitting actually right over there in church here one day, and I felt like God said two things to me. You hanging on to InterVarsity is like the disciples staying with the fish. Yes, it's a really good, amazing gift that I have given you, but you are hanging on to the gift rather than going to be with the giver. It seems obvious when you step back that it's better to go with the guy who gave you all the fish in the first place, but my heart gets stuck with the gift sometimes. I needed to let go of the good gift he had given me and follow his invitation beyond. Part of why it was hard for me to leave InterVarsity was that I didn't know what I was going to do next. One idea was to run a little farm shop at my aunt and uncle's place with my sister-in-law, Claire. But I kept struggling because I thought, okay, I know how I'm contributing to the work of the kingdom when I'm with InterVarsity, but how am I doing that when I sell spinach? Is that really enough kingdom value? So the second thing that God said to me that morning was, it is not up to you to decide what is worthy enough for you to be called to. Ow, that was like a punch to the gut in a good way. That was exactly what I was doing. And he was saying, that's not actually your problem. So with those two things in mind and still not really knowing what was next, I told my supervisors that I would be leaving. What is the invitation that Jesus has for you today? There may be a call or a tug on your heart that there is something you need to let go of, something you've been holding on to, and he's saying, hey, let's leave that and come over here with me. It was one thing for Simon to let this rabbi into his boat to teach, but when the rabbi wanted to fish, that was Simon's domain. And that may be happening for some of you. Jesus may be asking if he can enter some spaces in your life that you have previously not let him into, and it is certainly uncomfortable and maybe disorienting. Or maybe the invitation for you is an expanded way of seeing how you are already living. Maybe you thought you were doing this, and he says, oh, let's do this, and stretches out your understanding like fishing, expanded into fishing for people. Maybe the invitation is to see something you are already doing in a different way. Andy Crouch has a really helpful way of thinking about calling. I don't know if you can relate to this, but as someone who is very preoccupied with doing the right thing, I have long been somewhat obsessed with trying to figure out my calling. Just tell me what to do, Lord, and I'll do it. Crouch's explanation is more simple and perhaps more all at the same time. He describes three kinds of calling. The first as image bearers. Call to be image bearers, meaning we are all made in the image of God, and so we live out our calling when we live as image bearers. The Psalms talk about rocks and trees and water praising God. Now, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because when they are being their created selves, they are praising God. When rocks are rocks, they praise God by being their rocky selves. And when human beings made in the image of God are living as image bearers, we praise God. Part of being an image bearer is actually work. 
God gives humans work to do. And so Andy Crouch says, this is why almost all human work is perfectly appropriate for Christians. It requires no more justification than this. Bearing the image by working fruitfully in the good world is what we were always meant to do. The second kind of calling he describes is to restore the image of God in the world. Or another way to say that is to partner with God in bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Anywhere that we see the image of God broken, we see injustice or oppression, we can work with God to see his image restored on earth. Andy Crouch says these two are by far our most important calling and that they are true for all believers. Finally, our third calling he names our contingent calling. Our contingent calling is simply to live well today with the opportunities and resources available to us. These opportunities and resources could change anytime, but this call is to make the best use of where we are, with what we have, and any positions that we hold today. Now, this does not mean that we should only think about today and not consider deeper clarity for our vocation in life, but rather it helps us to hold that in perspective, to see that our most important fundamental callings are to be image bearers and to restore God's image. In and after that comes our more personal, specific calling. And we can get really hung up on trying to figure this out, but Andy Crouch says, if you get the first two right, the third is practically an afterthought. Vocation is how God has equipped us and how he might invite us to uniquely live out who he has made us to be. Vocation is not the same as occupation. Occupation is your job, current employment, how our days are occupied. Vocation transcends occupation. Vocation has to be more than occupation. Occupation may fit within our vocation, or we may live a vocation that we're not paid for. A number of years ago, when I was pleading with God to please give me a vocation, please help me know what to do with my life, this is the closest that I have been able to come to a vision or mission statement. To call people to live faithful whatever their particular vocations. I am passionate about blurring the lines between work and ministry. The most impactful ministry we have at church is how we all live and what we do between Monday to Saturday. My favorite conversations with students were about helping them to think about how they were going to live out their faith in their various occupations. One of my students, Danielle, a dentistry student, was struggling with her program and how many of her peers seemed to be there to make as much money as they could and work as little as possible. So I brought Danielle over one night to my Uncle Chuck and Auntie GR's house. I wanted Danielle to hear from Uncle Chuck, to hear about how he viewed his ophthalmology practice and decades of serving his patients. I wanted her to hear about how he deliberately booked less patients in a day so he could be sure to spend the time with them that they needed. I wanted her to hear how he knew that getting to address something so vulnerable as an eye and one's sight often led to much more profound and personal conversations. I wanted her to hear how he took time to learn greetings in his patient's own native languages. And I wanted her to be inspired to think about what she could do with her own practice one day. Perhaps for some of us, the invitation is to ask God to help us see bigger the places he has already placed us, 
to help grow our imagination for how we could serve him, how we could bear his image or work to restore his kingdom in our spheres of influence. We are all invited to follow him, whether that's as an experiment or for the first time, or whether you followed for a long time and he'd like to show you something new. If you're on Instagram or Twitter, you might be following hundreds of people and they might be following you. And I think that has cheapened the word. When I looked up the Greek word for following in this passage, I learned that it comes from two words. Alpha, as in the first letter, and the other word meaning road. First on the road. To follow is to join one who goes first. To walk with one who is ahead on the journey. We are invited to follow and to be with Jesus. We said Simon got a front row seat to teaching for invitation number one. He got an enormous catch of fish and a revelation for invitation number two. And for number three, he gets to be with Jesus. And when we are walking with Jesus, it is sure to be an adventure. <laughs>